You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Welcome, everybody, to the launching of the Youth Talks. We're very happy to be here with you and with these amazing young leaders here. The Youth Talks is a series of events that brings together youth leaders from different parts of the world to have conversations about the most pressing issues to peace today. The Youth Talks is uh, organized by our Youth Advisory Council, that is a group of 10 experts, youth leaders from different countries, from Latin America, from Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, that are part of the Generation Change Fellows Program. You can find more information about the Generation Change Fellows Program on USAP's website. The Youth Advisory Council and the series of events also is aligned with the UN Security Council Resolution 2250 on Youth, Peace, and Security. You can follow the conversation, this conversation, and you can post your questions on social media using the hashtag USIP Youth Talks. Remember that we also have simultaneous interpretation in Spanish and Arabic. And today I'm very happy to introduce Negar Abai, who Negar is program officer at USAP's gender policy and strategy team, and she supports the Institute work on women, peace, and security. Dr. Abai has an extensive experience conducting research and programs on gender-based violence, women and girls empowerment, and peaceful masculinities, particularly in Southern East and Asia, and uh, the Southern and East Africa, I'm sorry. Um, so Negar, welcome to this space. Happy to have you here with us. Thank you, Paula. It's a distinct pleasure for me to be a part of this conversation in which the agency of youth is centered. It goes without saying that the global COVID-19 pandemic has affected all of us in different ways, and sadly in many negative and disproportionate ways that are not surprising. Just as pre-existing medical conditions have rendered certain people more physically vulnerable to the virus, pre-existing social conditions like gender, racial, and economic inequality have increased the harmful and uneven impact of the pandemic. Gender-based violence has increased in all its forms during the pandemic. Predominantly directed at women and girls, gender-based violence is also experienced by sexual and gender minorities, as well as boys and men. Various factors during the pandemic have rendered this violence less visible and more difficult to prevent, including recurring lockdowns, constrained access to protective and social services, greater economic insecurity, and particularly in conflict settings, unchecked actions by armed actors, and in some cases, security forces. The number of calls received from victims on helplines have risen in many countries, as have fatal incidents of domestic abuse during lockdowns, and reports of sexual and gender-based violence by refugee and displaced women and girls. Additionally, an estimated 64 million women across the globe lost their jobs and a total of over 800 billion in income, which further increased, increased their vulnerability to violence. For some men, unemployment triggered abusive behaviors at home, bringing to the fore once again the need for societies to address harmful constructions of masculinity. COVID-19 infection and gender-based violence are really concurrent pandemics that exacerbate each other. 
Yet fewer than 1% of all COVID recovery plans included measures to address gender-based violence. And women's organizations continue to receive less than 1% of bilateral aid for their programs. The impact on youth has been particularly acute. Adolescent girls have been exposed to high levels of gender-based violence during the pandemic, especially on account of being unable to attend school, the increased burden of childcare and household responsibilities, and being forced into early marriages. The pandemic has also exacerbated the risks for minors of human trafficking and sexual exploitation. The production of sexual material containing minors was widely disseminated during the pandemic. There are approximately 1.3 billion youth in the world and a growing number of countries in which the majority of the population are under the age of 25. Youth have an enormous capacity for promoting and fostering peace and contributing to violence prevention efforts. With youth suffering disproportionate impact of the pandemic and risks of gender-based violence, it is more pressing than ever to meaningfully involve you in prevention, mitigation, and response programs. Youth have already demonstrated their constructive agency during the pandemic in different ways, including through innovative design and use of digital tools to advance their activism and serve excluded populations, in stepping up for the next generation as mentors and educators, and in forging new patterns of collaboration across traditional divides. In what I expect will be a very engaging conversation today, I hope our speakers will be able to share their own insights on the opportunities for youth involvement, how the priorities of young people can be addressed from a policy perspective, and how youth alliances can leverage global networks to improve advocacy and access to resources, specifically for gender-based violence prevention, but also for larger concerns around peace building. The pandemic has in many ways been a story of lessons not learned, of injustices and inequalities we have failed to address. I personally have faith that with your generation's heightened appreciation of humanity's fundamental interconnectedness and the importance of justice to lasting peace, you will be leaders in affecting transformative change in your families, communities, and the institutions with which you engage. I turn it over now to Sofia Santi, Generation Change Fellow from Venezuela and co-chair of the USIP Youth Advisory Council, who will be moderating the panel discussion today. Over to you, Sophia. Thank you so much, Negar. Thank you so everyone that's been here listening to us from different platforms. Um, I would like to first introduce our amazing panelists. They're all Generation Change Fellows from around the world. We have Sukaina Hamia from Morocco. She's an account manager at Women in Governance Organization. We have Jao Ramirez from Venezuela. He's the director at Somos Movement. And Zuheila Rasi from Afghanistan. And she works at the Young Emerging Leaders Program and last, we have Miyashan Kuptai from South Sudan, and she's the gender advisor in the assistance mission for Africa. And I'm most excited to hear from different corners of the world, especially on how we can deepen our understanding on gender-based violence, and even how can we even mitigate it, its consequences. So first, I would like to start this first round of questions with Sukaina. So from your perspective, to start with a global idea on the issue, how can we navigate 
and understand the causes and impacts of COVID-19 on different genders and how gender-insensitive systems and policies magnify the risks of the gender-based violence. Thank you, Sukaina, to you. You're welcome. Thank you, Sophia. Well, thank you for the wonderful uh, introductions. Um, really grateful to be here again with my people. It's an honor to be part of this panel. And uh, well, good morning, good afternoon, everyone, wherever you are. So in order to, um, to, uh, to answer your question, I will be talking about the internality of race and gender and how that influences gender-based violence. I will attempt to offer uh, an African sketch within the broader landscape of COVID and gender-based violence, which is actually similar all around the world with very few contextual um, um, realities. So it's no secret that um, achieving gender equality is considered a priority in different African countries. Um, and it's um, even uh, enshrined in the African Union Constitutive Act as a guiding principle according to which the union should operate. Um, it is also recognized in all the goals of the Agenda 2063 as a core uh, stone of the AU's development agenda, for example. However, the new world order and the realities of women around the world and around the continent require um, innovative and um, progressive solutions to achieve this critical development goal. And we've all witnessed that in the last three years, Africa has been facing two pandemics, COVID-19 and gender-based violence. We perhaps have come up with vaccines to control the spread of COVID-19. However, none of us is immune to the gender-based violence pandemic, which has become in just a few months um, a global uh, and a regional pandemic as well. And as of today, it has been proven that COVID-19 has reversed the gains many African countries have made in promoting um, gender equality, um, um, women empowerment, and women's rights. And here it's, and today it's fundamental to keep in mind that gender inequalities have the potential to exacerbate any outbreak. Today, it was, it was COVID. A few years back, it was Ebola. And responses that do not incorporate gender analysis may in turn worsen um, uh, inequalities. And in the context of COVID, the, um, uh, especially in, in, in the African uh, continent, the impact of gender-based violence ranges from immediate to, um, to long-term physical, um, sexual, mental, and emotional consequences, and even death in the most extreme circumstances. Most common forms of gender-based violence in Africa are uh, FGM, uh, intimate partner violence, um, uh, early and forced child marriages, uh, gender-based and sexual violence against women and girls in conflict contexts, and also gender-based violence in humanitarian uh, situations, COVID pandemic as an example. And since the outbreak of COVID, emerging data and reports have shown that all the types of violence against women and girls have intensified in all countries affected by the pandemic. For every three months, the lockdown continued. There were 
um, a 15 million additional cases of gender-based violence. And um, just to give you an example, in the Sahel region, uh, domestic violence, whether uh, physical or verbal, increased from 40% before the COVID-19 crisis to over 53% during the pandemic crisis. Other uh, countries like Chad, Senegal, uh, Mali record, recorded increases of over 30, 30%. Uh, other uh, Eastern uh, African countries like Kenya, there was, there was um, a significant spike in sexual offenses in many parts of the country. Rape, for example, have constituted more than 35% of all reported cases. In northern area, in northern African countries, like in Morocco, Egypt, uh, Algeria, several cases of femicide have been committed since the beginning of the pandemic. And the incidents increased in the context of the lockdown, especially with uh, murder occurring every three to four days. Uh, another example is Tunisia, where the 87% of the calls that the helpline from the, uh, the, the, the Ministry of Women Affairs have implemented received reported physical violence against women and girls. So 87% of all the calls received reported violence against women um, uh, and girls. And this can be explained by different factors. Um, uh, first, women with violent partners increasingly find themselves isolated from the people and resources that can, can help them, especially when we talk about a context of lockdown. And the pandemic has far-reaching like impact on harmful practices against women and girls, including the elimination of child marriage, uh, female genital mutilation, and due to pandemic-related disruptions in prevention programs, it is expected that globally 2 million FGM cases could occur over the next decade that would otherwise have not been averted. Uh, moreover, the um, gender-based violence survivors has, have experienced like limited access to legal protection services as most civil um, um, hearings and case five reception, of course, were suspended and uh, issuances of course orders were significantly delayed and most legal and centers were closed including uh, in, uh, including like the uh, um, uh, access to helplines for both um, women and and uh, and young girl, girls and um, as a result Efforts to end, for instance, child marriage can be disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic, which could result in an addition of 13 million child marriages taking place that otherwise would not have occurred between 2020 and 2013. Um, school closures uh, intensified uh, gender inequalities, especially for the poorest um, girls and, and young women who face a greater risk of early and forced marriage, um, sexual abuse, and unintended pregnancy during emergencies. The pandemic and sub Sequent like measures to address the pandemic have disrupted the availability and accessibility of certain services for survivors for survivors of violence. Service providers from all sectors, uh, be it government or non-governmental, were overstretched. I would say to um, 
to maintain services to violence survivors given constraints posed by the pandemic. Uh, to give you an example, health services. Health services have always been considered like traditionally the first responders for women. And they were, throughout the, the, the pandemic, and especially during the lockdown, they were overwhelmed and they have shifted priorities and they were otherwise unable to, to help. And in addition to this, there is the uh, limited access to services that, could, that, that, were, that, that was uh, restricted for survivors, with, and especially those uh, especially women with uh, with uh, with unclear immigration status, um, sex workers, as well as 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 persons with disabilities, refugees, um, internally uh, displaced persons, and people um, uh, living with 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 HIV. So, just like my last points, and 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 what I'm trying to um, what I'm trying to highlight in here is that some categories of women and girls in Africa are among the most vulnerable groups exposed to the negative impacts of pandemics in general. And the COVID pandemic claimed the lives of millions across the globe, unfortunately. But we need to keep in mind that the pandemic's disproportionate impact on women and girls' lives is threatening to reverse the hard-won gains in advancing women and um, and girls' uh, rights and uh, gender uh, equality. So um, I think that that's mostly my um, in regards to the, the to the to the question. And if there's uh, other questions, I'd be I'd be glad to uh, to. Uh, we still have another round of questions coming up sure. next. Thank you, Sukaina, for opening up this, this panel. And I would like to highlight this powerful comment you made that there are two types of pandemic in Africa. And I think um, developing regions also suffered from that as well. Um, and it's quite alarming, the lack of assistance to victims, not only of gender-based violence, but all of the problems that come out of it. Mm -hmm. um, so of course, this leads me uh, to our next speaker, to how. Uh, I see you're working on an NGO focused on defending human rights and empowering empowering the LGBTQ plus community uh, in a country such as Venezuela. Um, could you share a little bit about how gender-based violence uh, was uh, in your community, especially in Latin America, and how did the pandemic affect it, if it did whatsoever? Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I am so happy to be in such a significant space for youth and continue to accent the realities of women and LGBTQ community. As our partner mentioned before, they, we live experience disproportionately the impact of the pandemic that creates all these humanitarian situations. Regarding your question, the LGBTQ community and OP are being affected by the pandemic, a reduction of, a considerable reduction of all their rights. We created bigger gaps to access to health services and fundamental rights such as life and safety. And in the case of Venezuela, I 
I think that this inequality and all this systematic violence that the LGBTQ community is faced starts in the home, it's multiplied in the streets, in the media, in the church, in the institutions, state institutions, and from the pandemic, all that violence was multiplied and it all has to do with the absence of rights. The, the Venezuelan state does not recognize the rights of the LGBT community. And to summarize it somehow, we are second-class citizens. Our fundamental rights, such as right to life or the access to justice, are hindered because of the decisions of the state, both by omission and act. And in the pandemic, all these inequalities and gaps were multiplied and enlarged. Like the cisgender women, the, the same situation in the cases of LGBTQ community, the family environment and violence was exacerbated due to the lockdown and the imposition during the, the pandemic. We have to say that there's a systematic lack of public policies in Venezuela. Venezuela is one of the countries with the biggest lag in the recognition of collective rights for the LGBT community. And this also occurs in a context of violence and political polarization and also happens in a humanitarian emergency condition. And we have to say it, it is the worst in the whole history of the American continent. Venezuela has lived in the recent years a situation or has data or the consequences of an armed conflict without having had an armed conflict. One of the biggest migration flux in, in the story and in this context, the LGBT community has been excluded from the political response and even humanitarian response. LGBTQ community are continuing to be invisibilized, invisibilized by the policies. There is a lack or absence of official data and a systematic denial to gather data of the realities of this LGBTQ collective. And going back to women, I have to say that this pandemic has not only affected the LGBT community particularly hard, but there are also subgroups that have been impacted in a more atrocious way regarding the pandemic and the humanitarian context. Specifically, it's but sorry, transgender women, sexual worker women, um, women with HIV, women with disabilities or farmer women are receiving the bigger part of this pandemic or humanitarian crisis and the restriction of their rights caused by the pandemic. Thank you, Hal. Um... And of course, I, I'm also from Venezuela and I understand the complicity of not only having the pandemic, but the entire crisis that's affecting Venezuela. And of course, that literally just like pushes down in the list of priorities to attend uh, the gender-based violence that wasn't even in the agenda in the first place. Um, and to hear a little bit about the same context, but from a different region, I would like to know about Zuhaila. Um, last year, of course, Afghanistan, we all know that took center stage in the international arena. And we know, of course, that the gender dynamics significantly changed since then. So I would like to know your opinion from your area of, of 
expertise. How was gender-based violence perceived in your country and uh, how it has changed since uh, last year's events and the pandemic, of course? Thank you so much for asking the question. Um, about uh, violence based on gender in Afghanistan, it's uh, always been alive in Afghanistan and mostly with some of this violence are women and girls and various factors have contributed to this situation. Um, society and culture has never accepted the presence of women in society, uh, in Afghan society, and never accept uh, their being, and they never accept their uh, right as a woman uh, in my country, Afghanistan. In recent years, after the first fall of the Taliban, the growth and uh, progress of women have been on the race, and women have proven their place in society despite gender violence uh, closed their ways and deprived women from many of their rights. Uh, with the arrival of COVID-19 in Afghanistan, gender violence spaces started to raise again more and more. In society, where poverty and war have always closed the ways to progress with the emergence of COVID-19 country, it rapid, its rapid growth and life path of women changed again and went back a few steps. Um, while it's been on, on gender has not only caused physical violence or verbal violence or sexual violence in families or in society, uh, but also spread its negative impact in external uh, causes in terms of COVID-19. With COVID-19, the economy of society and families um, fall down in its lowest possible level that it could go. And this decrease caused many women and girls to be deprived of education, their job, and their progress. And it's like, we can see this overall in many different countries, but in Afghanistan, it caused, I feel it caused too much, uh, the violence to get higher in my country. And Besides COVID-19, still we did not uh, decrease the uh, gender-based violence during the pandemic. We came to another crisis because of um, um, Afghanistan that uh, Taliban took the power again, and the intensity of violence based on gender increased. And According to the, the new laws uh, were enacted based on the idea of Taliban and women uh, were put under more pressure. School, schools were closed, their freedom was taken away and they were um, deprived of their education, their duties and all their rights. Um, more than COVID, still, we could not uh, manage the pandemic in our country, we e even forgot COVID. We focus on our right for women in the time of Taliban. The time that no women in Afghanistan has their right. No women uh, can say that we have, that we are a um, human being and we have right. They are staying in their home with no hope, with no interest for the for their life, for everything that they can have. And the idea of um, 
uh, gender-based violence in Afghanistan, it is so far to talk about that in a country like my country, when um, it is so hard uh, to make people understand women's rights. Violence based on gender has always taken victims in Afghanistan, and there is still no proper understanding of this issue in, in the society. Although globally, uh, this impact has been discussed and many organizations coming to Afghanistan and taking the responsibility, women themselves started um, fighting against it. Again, it didn't work because um, we are in different crises and when, when we want to take one of them, another one is coming. And now the idea of gender-based violence, I can say that it is so hard to conclude it in a num some numbers or um, some research. It is so hard to, uh, to have an understanding of this um, uh, about the gender-based violence in my country. Thank you, Zahila, for enlightening us on, on the situation in Afghanistan. And of course, I would like to mention or highlight what you said about the priorities of the Afghans, especially in the privation of education, that it seems to be the cause of gender-based violence, but then it's also the consequence. So it looks like a never-ending cycle. Um, so to end this round, I would like to know a little bit more about how we, what we can do about it. Um, so I would like to ask Anya Shankutai, um, a little bit more about the current situation of gender-based violence from what you do in, in with your work within Africa. Uh, like if you have any successful cases or existing policies that are available for us to learn, to try to implement it in our own communities, uh, of course, to mitigate the consequences of gender-based violence. Um, thank you, Sophia. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all our audience and to the USIP uh, Youth Advisory Council, and I'm grateful to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, before I dive in into uh, provisions and policies that exist within South Sudan on gender-based violence, I, I want to just give a background on how issues of GBV, especially in a country like South Sudan, whereby women and girls have been affected for decades uh, um, in, in relations to gender-based violence and different types of gender-based violence, whether sexual, emotional, physical, name it, still people think that when it comes to issues of gender-based violence it should only be about women and girls uh, and not putting in mind that issues of gender-based violence affect both genders and looking at uh, a patriarchal society with harmful cultural practices like South Sudan, it is still difficult for men and boys to come out and talk about issues of sexual gender-based violence that affected them directly. Having said that, I will dive into policies and existing provisions that are uh, in South Sudan on issues of gender-based violence. In the South Sudan Constitution under Part 2 and under the Bill of Rights, there is the right of life, human dignity, and also there is the right of women and right of children, and that falls also under issues of GBV. There is also a provision on the penal code and code of criminal procedures that highlights GBV and other sexual violence related crime punishment in line with that. And for that, 
The South Sudan GBV court has been inaugurated during the 16 days of activism on December 3, 2020 by the judiciary of South Sudan with support of different UN agencies and civil society with aim of speeding cases of GBV. And that's a good step in line with the policies that are existing on the ground on issues of gender-based violence. We have the National Action Plan for the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security in South Sudan. And there is one pillar, and that is the protection pillar, focuses more on gender-based violence and issues of gender-based violence. And the National Action Plan has been passed by the South Sudan Ministry of Gender, Child and Social Welfare in 2015, and it was a five-year uh, national action plan. We have two GBV policies or GBV bills that on the pipeline already in South Sudan. So far, we have the anti-GBV bill with the purpose of reforming and consolidating and also harmonizing laws and offenses that relates to GBV, including domestic violence, intimate partner violence, sexual violence, harassment, other harmful cultural practices, as well as child protection. We also have the family law, and it's also on the pipeline, and it's being discussed, and it's awaiting uh, approval. And it, it deals directly with issues that are related to family, especially things like male guardianship over women, issues of dowry, bride price, citizenship, nationality, and also the impact of male authority in marriages, divorce, management of marital properties, as well as child custody and maintenance. Knowing that in South Sudan, for example, as a woman and as a mother, when you are traveling, you have to get a consent from the father. And if the father is not around, you have to get a consent from an uncle or a male from the brother to, 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 to your partner. And he has to be a male. And these are some of the things that the family law um, is looking into tackle because also women have rights, you know, to move freely with their children within the country. Another thing is inheritance because under the harmful cultural practices, we have issues like wife inheritance. For example, if your husband passed on, you are being inherited by another family member in which that leads to a lot of issues and it is categorized under gender-based violence. The status of the family law right now in South Sudan, there is a steering committee all that has been in place and it is being headed by the Ministry of Gender, uh, Child and Social Welfare, as, as well as other civil society organizations and there are consultations that are already in place. So um, in brief, that is all about the current policies that exist in South Sudan on gender-based violence. Thank you and back to you, Sophia. Thank you. Um, and I, I really want to especially thank you for highlighting that this issue affects everyone. And it's a matter that includes all genders, not necessarily girls and women, but also men, of course. And of course, to not exclude all the actors, I would like to further the discussion on the prevention action, uh, aspect of gender-based violence, especially on a global scale. So I'll jump back to Sikena. Um what recommendations can you give our audience in different platforms beyond laws, but also for different actors in civil society organizations, um, uh, like local governments or um, other form of actors that can help mitigate the consequences of gender-based violence? Thank you, Sophia. So I think that one of the, um, one of the very first, um, like, elements I would think of is the, um, 
the key the key gaps in in, in responses, and this could include, for instance, the uh, the data inadequacy and weak monitoring and evaluation systems, because this is this is one of the things that we struggled with, like during during the the pandemic, is the almost absence to non-existence like, of numbers and data about gender-based violence. Um, I would also I would also like include the gaps in gender-based violence mainstreaming during humanitarian crises and such as COVID-19. Um, I think that um, I think that uh, one of the uh, one of the panelists mentioned earlier at the very beginning of the panel the um, the the um, the, the, the engagement of culture and religious institutions. And sometimes there is like an inadequate male engagement of those like figures who are usually like very well respected within their, their community, their local community. There is also like a weak, the weak instit institutional capacity that it's not, it's not like strong enough to first support women and young people. And second, which is even for me, like more important than just supporting women and youth, which is like implementing and providing those communities with tools that would ensure the continuity of the projects, of the initiatives. Uh, uh, there is also the, um, the, the, the challenge of the, of, the, of the binary legal systems in, in, in different regions in, 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 in the continent. Um, there is also the gap, uh, the gap between uh, uh, high level policies and awareness on the ground. So for any one of us who have the chance before to work on the field with NGOs and then uh, work for uh, um, continental or regional organizations, like who we all went through and lived and experienced firsthand this disconnect between what happens in the in the ground and what has been and what is being discussed in the in the rooms. So there is this too. Um, there is also the the uh, weak uh, uh, accountability uh, mechanisms. And um, one last uh, uh, point I would I would add also is the. Um, Sometimes the inadequate domestication and implementation of international, regional, and national instruments and laws on gender-based violence, it doesn't matter if it, if it was successful, like in a, in a certain region or a certain country, that it will be successful and, and or fit into the African or regional, like a local context. And... We we need to make sure that that um, that uh, that the the policies uh, uh, are tailored to meet the need of the community, the need of the people, and to meet their um, expectations. Um, and finally, there is only one last thing I would I would I would love to add is I think that. We can all agree, especially for fellows from Africa, that uh, when we talk sometimes about programs 
and about, uh, especially at programs that tackle the women, peace and security, youth, peace and security. We always talk about funds, but for all those who have the chance to work uh, in, 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 uh, in Africa, like on the field, I'm sure that they all uh, have the strong belief that Africa is not poor. Sometimes certain agendas are being poorly managed, but we have the resources we have the, 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 the financial resources, we have the human resources to make a change, to be the change we want to see in the continent. And maybe it's time to stop talking about youth, peace and security, women in peace and security, and start funding and supporting in a meaningful, tangible, and, um, and concrete uh, uh, way those agendas and those initiatives because at the end of the day gender inequality causes violence against women and girls and then violence against women and girls affects everyone and impedes the development and development is everyone's concerns no matter you no matter what your gender is so uh, I think that's all I have to say, and and, and uh, I would I'm I'm, uh, I'm so interested in in in, in learning more uh, from the uh, the other fellows on this on this uh, question. Thank you, Sakina. Um, I will also like to highlight what you mentioned of the lack of data affects vulnerable groups and the generalization of their mm -hmm. situation really makes it difficult for the assistance to be more, you know, effective in, especially in, in locations that are not necessarily um, very important or relevant for governments to, to, or to, you know, provide more assistance and, and, you know, solve the issue, especially address the issue of gender-based violence. So um, this is something that uh, has been happening in different regions, and I believe in every country of our panelists. Uh, so I would like to turn to how to learn a little bit more about what, especially us youth, we can do uh, in conflicted countries um, where gender-based violence is not in the agenda, but many people depend on the assistance provided by civil society organizations because the government doesn't or is not uh, able to to provide assistance. So I would like to know your opinion on the matter. How can we attend or you know mitigate the consequences of gender-based violence from the civil society organizations when the government does not support our activities? How are you there? Okay, I think we have a little bit of a technical issue. Um, so let's go with um, uh, Suhaila. Uh, it's a little bit similar to the question that I had on you, but it's a little bit on the other side of the extreme of the, of the question. So how can we empower vulnerable communities uh, to mitigate gender-based violence? Like what strategies in your experience, especially on education, how can we prevent gender-based violence uh, empowering the citizens? Um, to answer your question, um, it is not about just um, youth, it is about all women and girls who are in this uh, situation. According to what I was doing for 
girl and women. And what I'm doing now, we need to raise their voices. We need to share their stories about what, uh, how gender-based violence affect them and the, how um, it caused them to be uh, silent and they cannot talk about themselves. So here we should be their voice. Um, besides this, um, we need other organizations, related organizations for working in this field. They should come together and find the uh, problems and find a specific policy to end this uh, violence, uh, especially in communities like Afghanistan. When we are talking about Afghanistan, um, again, as I mentioned again, there is no one safe about their uh, right in Afghanistan. I'm talking about all women and girls in Afghanistan. So the, the way that I can do is that I can share their stories and show it to the world that they need your help. Please support them in, in any way that is possible. And in this time that um, most of organizations, they are just talking about women rights in Afghanistan. So there is no action yet. But we are in, in the time to go for actions and never put them behind and go for this that um, at least um, they can go for their education and they have their basic rights. And with these rights, we can go further for uh, more powerful steps. Thank you. Um, and of course, I think something that we can all agree is that education is pretty much the key to solving almost all issues uh, in, in the world. Um, so I, now that we have Hao back, I would like to go back to, to, ask, to asking him his question regarding how can we um, empower civil society organizations to provide and continue to provide this assistance to uh, victims of gender-based violence, or at least all actors involved in gender-based violence, considering countries that do not necessarily have the support of the government on the matter. So how, if you can listen to us, please go. Thank you, Sofia. First of all, I think we would have to continue strengthening our spaces to have a more public incidence, continue to strengthen our activism networks, continue to work on media and social networks so that we can strengthen our communities to demand this equality of rights, civil rights, and continue to build this equality movements that continue to give a voice to people or groups that are subrepresented even within our own communities. I think that one of the affirm affirmative actions that we've had in Venezuela during 2021 was the creation of the LGBTQ community community center that was one of the proposals of our organization. It is the first and only community center that exists in Venezuela 
and it was born in the middle of amidst adversity, not just the humanitarian crisis, but also within the framework of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it also tells us how these movements have to evolve. Somos was born as a movement geared to making people uncomfortable, but this humanitarian context and the economic conditions that exist in Venezuela force us to rethink the movement and organize protective measures and accompaniment for the people from the LGBT community that are in a condition of inequality. This community center was born in 2019. As I was saying, it's up to the state, the only center that exists in the country, and it offers holistic services of psychosocial attention, law attention, and a complete series of networks and support groups for the trans community. And within serious limitations that we had, we had to open in housing and and food program for the LGBT community. This has been done with very limited funds in the context of the organizations and chosen in, in Venezuela is adverse. There's a criminalization from the state for these NGOs and there are limitations such as the access to funds and that they, they require registration for these organizations in the public entities or even the impossibility of opening bank accounts in, in dollars. So all these limitations hinder the reception of funds and, and so far there's an awareness within the donors to destine these resources to continue protecting the LGBT community in Venezuela. And in all that humanitarian crisis context is, is, is one context, but the rights of the LGBT community is another context, but the collective of LGBT and the women survived this, this humanitarian crisis in a differentiated way. And this LGBT community center experience, I, I like to tell it because I think it can show in some way that activism works, that when communities are organized and focused in protecting ourselves, it, there is the possibility of building impressive things. I also believe, and, and I joined this call to continue to gather data of the reality of women, cis, trans, and of the LGBT community and the impact that violence has had in our lives. And lastly, I, I believe that a fundamental proposal for all the regions is to continue to democratize feminism that men continue to promote or, or hand over the power so that women can have more participation. And that way we can democratize and reach women, especially suppressed women, that the feminism agenda isn't only in the feminism of cis, heterosexual, white women, but rather build an agenda for women with racial diversity, with disabilities, with farmer women, women in uh, migration mobility, and continue to build an agenda that continues to include women and I would like to add what one of our colleagues was saying regarding the needs 
no para que los hombres hagan feminism reach men not just for men to wave feminism as a flag but also for feminism to release us from all these oppressions of this patriarchal system of all the impact that this patriarchal system has in the lives of men and so that men can understand how we can help build a world where women have a place and power is distributed equally among all. Thank you, Hao. And um, I want to highlight two points that you mentioned. The first one is to bring awareness to the international community, especially the donors, to correctly allocate funds to organizations and projects that are going to create the most meaningful impact in communities. And of course, also to democratize feminism. That's a very uh, interesting sentence that you mentioned. And I think that's something that we can all implement in our own work. Um, to finalize this uh, panel, um, before I continue with our Last uh, question. I would like to remind everyone that's listening to us uh, that you can ask questions using the hashtag USIP Youth Talks uh, in all the different platforms that we're presenting uh, this session. So please, uh, we have a few minutes left, but we would like to answer as many questions as possible. So uh, to end this session, I would like to go back to Ms. Tai. Um, uh, of course, what what how was mentioning about uh, you know growing our own and strengthening our networks, I think that it's also very important to strengthen our own selves and, you know, uh, continue our education, like attending sessions like this. So from the Youth Advisory Council and USAP, we work to empower youth and always bring their voice to the center of these types of issues, hence this event. So I would like to ask you from your experience, what role can youth, specifically youth, can play to addressing gender-based violence um, in order to at least increase our knowledge of it and for the next generations to become more aware of this issue. Thank you, Sophia. Um, just to say, um, youth are creative, youth are talented and smart. When it comes to using technology, when it comes to using platforms without funding, they're making change in their communities. They're raising awareness through different social media platforms. One big recommendation is that youth need to be more critical and more loud, especially when it comes to raising awareness and leading conversations on GBV. I'll give an example of um, South Sudan girls breaking the silence. And that was a hashtag that went viral in the year 2020 where so many South Sudanese girls for the first time spoke about being sexually violated by perpetrators who have not been far, who are family members, uncles, people who are well-known neighbors and so forth. And it took one person to come out and then the rest of the girls started coming out. And most of these girls were no longer living in South Sudan anymore. They were living in different continents. And as a result, so many young South Sudanese got inspired and they started talking and speaking up about this. So I think, sorry, one of the roles that the youth can play because when it comes to issues of gender-based violence and sexual gender-based violence, youth are the most affected category. So they have to speak up. By speaking up, so many perpetrators will be afraid of committing the act. And for that, issues of gender-based violence will reduce. Also, when it comes to issues of funding and resources, 
youth projects in different organizations are being given limited funding and youth projects are not being prioritized while there are some other things or some other uh, emergency situations that looks more urgent than funding youth issues. And for me, I think youth are the leaders of today and not tomorrow. And if you are preparing someone for leadership, you need to give that person the right uh, you know, resources that they need, capacitate them well enough in order for them to be able to, talk, to take that role. So I, I call out youth to be able to use existing platforms that are in different organizations by asking these organizations that they work for to increase youth funding and to make sure that youth projects are, are being prioritized. Another recommendation also is that for youth to, for example, we have Generation Change Fellows. These are different youth. We have Youth Advisory Council. And within USIP, there are other departments that deal directly with issues of GBV. For example, we have the Department of Gender. Some of the youth who are already within the USIP network can build on into that by asking to have access to these departments where they can have, you know, frameworks, they can have uh, manuals, training guides, where they can be able to add that into the existing knowledge that they have. And also they take it to the, to, to the field and to, and to the grassroots level in order for other people also to benefit from all that. Another thing also is the power of awareness and campaigning, especially at the grassroots level. Uh, youth can use different platforms, including radio stations for some remote areas at the grassroots where there is no access to, to phone or network services to raise awareness and make sure that this awareness raising is continuous, even if the youth are no longer on the ground, it will be upon the community to take over the raising of awareness of issues of gender-based violence. Also, there is power in campaigning and hashtags. Youth can use platform to campaign and also um, send messages across different platforms in relation to GBV and make things happen. So in, in, in conclusion, I, I would like to say that however much youth are creative, however much youth have you know, uh, access to their own phones, have access to internet and they know how to use it perfectly, it's still youth, they need support from different uh, donor organizations, from different institutions to build in and tap in into their talents and also to capacitate them and also to provide them with the right resources and funding in order for them to be able to excel and also fight issues of GBV and also achieve the results that are expected. Thank you and over to you, Sophia. Thank you. Um, sadly, we only have two minutes left of the session. We had a, a few questions that um, our audience wanted to ask you, but we'll make sure to answer them in different formats uh, through the Youth Advisory Council. So thank you all the panelists and thank you for the audience for listening to us. Now I'll throw it back to Paula. Thank you all. I just want to say thank you as Sophia and thank you Sophia for moderating this panel uh, panel as well um, and everything that you raised here it's very valuable and it's also um, help us as well like shape uh, the work that we're doing uh, I would just wanted to highlight what you mentioned that it's important that we are not generalizing the WPS agenda the YPS agenda uh, because we cannot in 
in quotes, categorized uh, like youth or women in the same bucket. Like there are different identities and there are some that are more vulnerable and attached to that is that we need to continue to uh, challenge the binary systems that are also excluding different genders. Like for example, how I was mentioning uh, in Venezuela, uh, there is an importance um, and uh, there like I, what, what I heard is that there's an importance of not only talking about youth peace and security, women peace and security, but also like investing and try to find the, the, the ways, the mechanisms to, to, to support those initiatives, especially those who like the funding systems, the bank, the bank systems are more challenging because there are like a lot of limitations. Um, so funders and institutions con needs to continue thinking about these and thinking about like, um, uh, including and thinking uh, like the, these different um, people that have more challenges, as you were mentioning, uh, migrants, transgender people from rural communities who have less access. And that's, uh, that's, that's a struggle that we need to uh, really have in mind when working on these two uh, agendas. So I really want to thank USAP Youth Advisory Council, uh, the Gender Policy Strategy Team, the USAP Events, Public Affairs and Communication, our AV team to, for making this event possible. Um, and you can continue the conversation on social media by using USIP Youth Talks, uh, the hashtag USIP Youth Talks. Thank you so much, Nia Chenquod, Sofia, Suhala, Sukena, um, and Negar. And see you in the next Youth Talks. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.